0: Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. In today's episode, I'll be talking with Allie Guerin. Allie holds an MA from Missouri State University and is currently pursuing an MFA degree in poetry at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. Her work has appeared in Caustic Frolic and in Moon City Review as part of a creative writing contest for Missouri State University students. Ali, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: All right, so you're an experienced poet and you're currently attending a really interesting program at the University of Arkansas that I'm excited to talk about. But first, do you remember the first time you realized the power of words and the power of writing?
1: Um I think for me, the first time that I kind of realized the impact that my words could have on others was when I was about 13 years old in eighth grade. Um, I wrote a poem. It was an awful poem. Um, it was terrible. It was like rhyming quatrains, awful stuff. But I wrote this poem and my instructor, my teacher came and she was like, this is really, really good, Ali. We should like try to get it published. And we ended up getting it published in like some little piddly like anthology for young writers or whatever and I don't that's not something that I talk about because that poem is embarrassing for me (laughs) um but I think that that was kind of the moment that I realized that poetry is something that impacts people and that people can have a reaction to
0: yeah how old how old did you say you were
1: I was 13
0: 13 years old
1: 13 years old and
0: you have a publication under your belt
1: (laughs) (laughs) we don't talk about that though
0: (laughs) so did you find that your teachers were pretty supportive back then like uh, supportive of like the arts and writing things like that
1: um I think so I wasn't exposed to a lot of contemporary writing poetry specifically contemporary poetry through my um like elementary, high school, middle school, all that education. Mm-hmm. The first time that I realized, I mean, I had that publication, but the first time that I realized that poetry was something that you could do with your life um, was whenever I got into college. And I think that that is part of growing up in a really small town, um, in a relatively rural area, we didn't have a lot of funding for arts things like that. So, I think um, I had teachers through the years who were supportive, but as a whole, I don't know that. I mean, I was introduced to anything more contemporary than like Edgar and Poe, um, yeah, which is not right, not contemporary. Uh, so, I mean, that was the most contemporary exposure that I had in school, in high school, and things like that. So. I had that experience when I was 13 in eighth grade. Um, but I think that I didn't really realize that poetry was something that I could do with my life until I got into higher education.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I I had a pretty similar experience. I'm from a small town as well. Um, working class, like my, my dad did construction most of his life and my mom was a kindergarten teacher in a small rural school. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm curious, Did growing up in that small town, did that affect your writing at all or your worldview in general? Like, do you find those things creeping into your writing now that you're writing contemporary poetry?
1: Yeah, I don't know that I write so much about, like, living in a small town as I do. It more impacts, I think, the nature of my poetry. I tend to be a very narrative poet, um... My focus tends to be on, like, accessible poetry, and I think that growing up where I did and in the environment that I did has really impacted that and um, influenced that. Um, Both of my parents are nurses, and my mom um, has said over and over, she doesn't really get the whole creative writing thing, and she's always, like, anytime we try to talk about poetry, she's like, well, I just don't understand that stuff. I just don't understand that stuff. But then, like, when she, like, has the opportunity to read a poem, like, she does understand it. I think that the idea of poetry as, like, this thing that exists only for, like, academic people who sit in an office all day and read dusty books, I mean, that has its place, but I think that in order for us to survive, poetry has to become more of an accessible, like, um, like I think... It took me 10 years to get through undergrad, and I think that um, if I had started a little, or if I had been um, exposed to more contemporary poetry in high school, it wouldn't have taken me that long, um, or maybe it would have, I don't, maybe I'm just indecisive, but um, I think that growing up where I did and in the environment that I did has definitely influenced the way that I write, even if it doesn't directly influence my subject matter.
0: Yeah, that that makes total sense to me. I, I mean, I've had a very similar experience. I think the idea of like, maybe people from um, your hometown not really understanding uh, why you're going into creative writing. I don't know about you. I always get the same thing when, when I tell people oh, I'm studying creative writing in an MFA program that the response is usually, well, what are you going to do with that?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then what? <laughs> I don't <Yeah>.
0: know. <laughs> but no, you know, it's like... yeah. <laughs> It's the blue collar mentality of, you know, if you've um, grown up in an environment where, um, you know, work is about survival, you know, like instead of like personal fulfillment in some, in some sense, not to say that like blue collar jobs aren't personally fulfilling because I've worked them and I find them to be, but um, there is like a different mindset there, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. So when you say accessible, like, what do you mean by that?
1: Um, I think that when I say accessible, in my mind, it means something like a narrative based poem. So not every poem has to necessarily tell a story. But I think that if you can find the story in a poem, it makes it easier to understand. people understand stories. Those are like, you know, have been around forever. And so I think that a narrative based poem and a poem that like not dumbs down the language, but doesn't use unnecessarily flowery language. Um, I don't know, I've worked. um, So Missouri State University, that program is very narrative based. And then I came to the University of Arkansas. And there's a little bit of everything here. Um, I think one of the things that makes our program unique is that we kind of touch, I mean, I work with formalists, um, there's a lot of abstract poets, things like that. So, you know, I have an appreciation for that style of work, but I think that that's the kind of work that my parents and people who dismiss poetry as this thing that they don't understand, that's the kind of work that they're encountering, rather than work that kind of describes. a shared experience or tells a story or works to express some kind of an emotion.
0: Yeah. I, I did an interview recently with the poet, Sasha Debevic McKinney, and she had this, um, this really kind of, uh, strong question where she said, you know, kind of a, a question for poets. Um, do you want to make change or do you want to show off how pretty your words are? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think there's room for both, right? In some way. Um, but yeah, there is this question of, um, are you writing po- your poetry or your stories for the privileged few who could have the ability to go to a graduate program or to an MFA program? Or are you trying to reach out to these communities that have felt maybe excluded from um, this kind of art? Um, so I... Do you, so, when you're writing poetry, do you have like do you have your reader in mind when you're writing? Are you imagining someone that the, that's going to be reading that poem?
1: Um, not that happens more in editing, I think, um, or in revision. Whenever I like, whenever the piece exists on the page, whenever I'm like looking at things that I can change or adjust, I think that that's when I'm thinking about audience more. Um, writing for me tends to be just like, it sounds so cliche, but like a form of expression. Um, I think growing up where I, I mean, Southwest Missouri is very conservative, very Christian. And I think that my childhood kind of mirrored that. And now uh, 10 years or so out from that, um, I think I have a different perspective on that and poetry gives me a way to kind of process through the things that I used to believe and used to feel and I'm now experiencing and then like life experience I think um I listened to Mary's episode interview with you and mm-hmm. um she said I can't, I'm not gonna be able to say it as well as she said it but she said you know poetry gives us this or uh, writing in general gives us this way to kind of make something beautiful out of something that wasn't, and I think yeah. that that's really profound, and I think that that's why or what like draws me to write um and then my audience comes in 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 revision, I think, but they're always mm-hmm. i don't know, maybe they are there while I'm writing, but not consciously,
0: yeah, and I think that goes back to what you were saying about narrative um, poetry being a way to tap into some kind of um, human emotion or experience that transcends maybe socioeconomic classes and backgrounds um, to maybe um, become more accessible um, to more people. Um, So, I mean, you talked a little bit about growing up in Southern Missouri, you went to MSU. Um, While you were there, you, Published this poem called "Delinquent Motherhood," which I read and it's really good. Um, it's it's in Moon City Review, um, and you, you that was published as part of a creative writing contest for MSU students. Is that right?
1: Mm-hmm. So every year Missouri State does or Moon City Review, but that's uh, Moon City Review belongs to Missouri State. So. They do a contest for undergraduate and graduate students. Anybody can submit something. You can submit um, a poem. They do poem, short story, and then they weren't at the time, but they are now doing um, nonfiction. Um, And I submitted, I've submitted a couple of years, and then I submitted this one year, and the guest judge happened to be Sarah Freely, who is one of my personal favorite poets. And um, she selected it, and yeah, it it got published.
0: That's amazing. amazing. (laughs) I mean, it was that your, so man, to get published is, you know, exciting enough, but for one of your favorite poets to be the one who chose it.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: That's incredible.
1: I think, so she was the judge because her manuscript was selected for publication by Missouri, or by Main City Review. And um, it's called Sad Math. It's an incredible collection. But I think what she talks about in Sad Math, one of the themes is like, teenage, um, teenage pregnancy and teenage motherhood. And I don't know, delinquent motherhood to me, that's just like one piece of it. That's just like the, the match or whatever metaphor you want to lay over it. But I think that like that kind of shared experience between the two of us kind of, um, I don't know. I think I feel like a kinship with her now in a really weird way.
0: Yeah. Um, and that goes back to the power of words, the power of yeah. writing, because there are those writers out there, those things that you read where you just feel, you know, they could be from the other side of the world, but you have some kind of shared human experience that connects you with them. Um, so I think that's what we're talking about when we talk about writing things that are accessible, right? Yeah. Things that all these communities could read and connect to and find some, you know, kindred connection to the writer and to the material. Um. That's great. Yeah, I, I really like that poem, "Delinquent Motherhood." I mean, I think your ability to to look at the struggles of small town America and distill that larger issue into um, an examination of like your own family dynamics was really well done. Um, I have a lot of respect for nonfiction writers because uh, I mean, you're writing this poem has you know, it's there are nonfiction elements to it and. Yeah. I write fiction. um, So it's a little bit different, but if you're writing nonfiction, you really have to put yourself out there. And you mentioned that your community is um, pretty conservative Christian, right? So um, I'm wondering, was it hard to write that poem? Was it hard to publish that poem, knowing that people in your community would read it or were you excited for them to see that perspective?
1: So I didn't, think about that. So I wrote the, the the poem came about, I was talking to Marcus Cafagna, who is one of the instructors at Missouri State and one of my mentors. I was talking to him before class one day. We were just like chit-chatting. I don't even remember like what we were talking about, but I mentioned kind of like offhand to him that one in 10 of the girls I graduated in a class of 200 and one in 10 of the girls in my graduating class were either pregnant or had been pregnant at some point during their high school career and I just kind of mentioned that offhand to him and his reaction to that was kind of he was like shocked and then he was like maybe you have a poem there and I was like I don't know about that um but there was a poem there. And so I turned it in and I wasn't like expecting it to win. And then it got like, then it did win. And I didn't like think about the implications of it being published because at that time I was not out to my family. Um, I was out to my friends and like things like that, but I kind of kept those two worlds separate. And so I didn't think about the implications of being published and what like people being able to read that part of my life would entail. Um, and so then I like told my mom, I like texted my mom and I was like, Hey, guess what? I won. And then she was like, I can't wait to read it. And then I was like, oh shit, (laughs) now she's going to read this poem. (laughs) Um, so that's how I initially like, didn't want to share it with her. Um, initially I was like, no, I don't want you to read it. Like, I don't. it's personal, whatever, but then she did read it. She got her hands on a copy of it. And that's kind of like the first time that I came out to my mom, um, I say the first time because, like, that happened. She texted me Bible verses for, like, three days, and then, like, we never spoke of it again until, like, very recently. But, um, and so, like, now I'm out to my family and everything is fine and chill, and my mom and I are in a much better place now. But I think that um, if I could go back and do it again, I don't know that I would come out in a poem to my parents. Um, but that poem, I think, will always have, like, a very special place in my heart because of, the circumstances surrounding it and kind of like how it impacted things. So, I was kind of like mixed feelings about it being published. Like, I was really excited. Um, my friends were very excited for me, and my family was excited. And then there was like this moment of realization where it's like, okay, now I actually have to like prove to them that it, you know, that it did get published and that it exists in the world.
0: So, having that hindsight, do you have advice for any writers who are thinking about publishing really personal stuff like that?
1: Um, don't maybe, I mean, like if you want to, I'm not here to tell anybody how to come out to their family. Sure. Um, sure. I think that that is a personal decision and something that like you should do whenever you feel ready and supported. Um, but I would not recommend doing it. Like I would not recommend handing your mom a book that has your poem in it and being like, here you go. I'm not going to warn you at all. This is what it is. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't regret having it published and I don't regret sharing it with my mom. Um, But I think that I could have made that transition a little bit smoother for everybody involved.
0: Well, it's a beautiful poem and I read it and I connected to it and um, uh, I, immediately started thinking about, back about growing up in my small town, um, and the teenage pregnancies, um, that were prevalent there, not one in 10, that is a shocking number, but, um, that happened a lot. And, um, even, you know, like in my own family and, uh, the way that, um, people in a small community handle those, those kind of things. Yeah. It can be difficult, but I love the poem and you, uh, I'm so glad you published it. And I bet <laughs> people who read it are, you know, really connecting with it. Yeah, um, and, and I bet it helped you get into the Arkansas MFA program because it is a great, it is a great poem. Thank you. Um, and Arkansas. So let's talk about the program a bit. It's, it's <laughs> one of the oldest programs in the country. Mm-hmm. Um from what I can tell from the website, they offer degrees in poetry, fiction, and translation. Mm-hmm. Um, the program's pretty unique in that it's a four-year program, um, but it's a really good program. Several poet laureates have come out of there, um, a whole slew of other prize winners. So was there anything specific that drew you to that program?
1: Honestly, um, it is free to apply to until you get in. <laughs> so that was anybody who has been through or is going through the application process for MFAs, it gets very expensive very quickly. And I was on a train from St. Louis to Kansas City. And um, I like pulled it up. And I was like, I don't know if I want to go to Arkansas, but it's free. So like, why not? And then i um, I got in. So that's what drew me to it initially. Um, I also liked that it was very close about three hours from my hometown. Um, so I'm very close to family still. Um, and it was one of the only places that I got in. So, um, it seemed like a good fit.
0: I mean, application fees are extensive Mm -hmm. when applying to MFA programs. I think the, on average, um, Applicants apply to nine or ten programs uh and that you could easily spend a thousand dollars just applying oh, yeah. to nine or ten programs, right? So to have a a really good program that doesn't have any application fees that you have to pay until you're accepted is a big draw. Mm-hmm. Um and good information for anyone listening thinking about applying to Arkansas. Um so you know, judging by the website, it looks like the program also has a reading series, a visiting writer series, and the Arkansas International Literary Journal. Um, can you tell us at all about those? Do you have any experience working with those or participating in those?
1: Uh, no, I have not had the opportunity to work on the journal as yet. Um, our visiting writers, the um, it got a little bit messed up because of COVID. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, our poet was supposed to come this spring, and she ended up not being able to come because of COVID. Um, but it is, I mean, I think that, and I know that, so we're kind of in the news right now because we're petitioning for um, an increase in our stipend, um, but I don't want people to think that I am at all like ungrateful or unhappy. This program is excellent and it's wonderful. And I'm so happy to be here. Um, And it's given me the opportunity to kind of like progress in my own work in a way that I didn't think was possible until I did it.
0: Well, yeah. um, Well, let's talk about money a bit. I mean, Arkansas is a fully funded program. Mm -hmm. Um, So MFA students are mostly working as teaching assistants from what I can tell um, in return for a stipend and tuition remission. And the stipend is a bit below average, probably it's 12,500 per school year. Um, and then how much teaching are you doing as part of that TA position?
1: We take two courses, um, a semester. So six hours of teaching, um, and then like everything that goes with teaching. So (laughs) lesson planning and grading and, you know, all that good stuff, student emails. Um, but we, take, we teach two courses. Um, and then there's also an option you can work um, as like a tutor um, or there's one girl that does like um, the social media that's part of her graduate. So there's like other options, but the vast majority of us are teaching two classes.
0: Okay, and you, know, you mentioned uh, that there's a petition to increase that stipend um, at the University of Arkansas What has the response been? Has there been Uh, any response yet?
1: Nothing as of yet. Um we sent it last Wednesday um and no response yet. Um it we did get so we sent out the the letter on last Wednesday a week from from today. So the what was that, the first? Um we sent it out on the first. And then on Friday there was like a department wide email that basically said um this stipend was staying the same for the coming school year, um, but no like specific response that seemed to be just like, a, I mean, had all kinds of information that like, this is when we're starting this is like what's going on with the university Oh, and by the way, graduate assistants are still going to be paid the same amount that they were paid last year. Um, but we have not had a had a response from from Chancellor assignments yet.
0: Well, it is a tricky situation, right? Absolutely, Um, yeah. There's been a lot of push around the country at at, um, different programs, not just MFA programs, but graduate programs in general for increased stipends, covering health insurance, things like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad you said this because I think for a lot of people, they might be afraid that the school would think, oh, this person's not grateful to be here. They are not enjoying the program. They want to change things. But really... From my point of view, it's more about the purpose of these programs, which is to give you the time and the space to work on your writing and become the best writer you can. And if people are struggling to get by, um, that could interfere with that. So I'm curious, are are people in your program, are you um, and others working other jobs on the side in the summer? Um, And if so, how does that affect your writing?
1: Um, I work... I work another job. I work in a local ER. Um, I work in registration. Um, I am working full-time this summer. And then during the school year, I cut back a little bit. I work about 30 hours a week at my um, hospital job and then um, teach two classes, take three classes. So it gets, it's hard to find time to write. Um, I think and like, how does it, I mean, it's kind of a double-edged sword though, right? Because I, write a little bit about like that aspect of my life, like working in healthcare, that is something that I like draw subject material from on occasion. So I have like that really rich resource of here's all these stories that I get to tell and opportunity or uh, things that I get to talk about um, working in healthcare that really a lot of poets don't have the opportunity to talk about. Um, But at the same time, like, working 30 hours a week and trying to teach and trying to like take my own classes gets is exhausting.
0: Yeah. Um, and I always say that as a writer, you need the mental space. Like you need time to just not have anything on your mind in order to really tap into, you know, your creativity and to get inspiration and to start these poems or stories. And if you're, you're working 30 hours a week on the side from a 30 hour teaching position, uh, I can't imagine. It must be really hard. Um, but okay. So let's, I mean, let's talk a, a bit about the a workshops,
1: bit, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause
0: I'm, I'm sure that there are a lot of fantastic things happening at Arkansas that you're yeah. really enjoying. So, um, being a four-year program, I'm curious, um, how many students are in the program at a given time and like what the workshops look like if they're big or small, Um, If there's, if you're taking classes with students who are in their fourth year while you're in your first year, things like that.
1: So um, our class sizes, so our cohort, they average about 10 people. I think there's 11 in my cohort um, and that's poetry, fiction and translation included. So there's 11 of us across all three of the the MFA programs. Um, And so there's about 40, give or take a few students in the like overall in the MFA um, we take classes we don't take class we don't take workshop with um, anybody in their fourth year fourth years don't take workshop they're working on their thesis mm-hmm. um, but we do take workshop with like first through third years um, and it's kind of dicey because they limit the workshop to 12 people sometimes 14 people and so um, you don't take a workshop every semester they just don't have the the class space for that but you do it is combined with other cohorts um and then like our other classes like our literature classes our craft classes things like that we have people from first through fourth years in those with us
0: that's interesting um because i think most people would say this the smaller the workshop the better really Mm -hmm. um but if there's not enough space to get in there every semester that, that it might be a bit frustrating i guess um but so how many workshops do you take over the course of the whole program then
1: Oh, um. I want to say. I'm counting semesters.
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so outside of the thesis year, then um, I guess there would be six semesters.
1: It, yeah. So like four ish. Mm-hmm. Um depending. I think it's four. Gosh, you're quizzing me on things that I should... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> putting um, you on the spot here. No, you're fine. You're fine. I think it's four. It might be five. I know there's definitely one semester where you don't have to take a workshop. Okay.
0: Okay. Um, well, let's talk a bit about the writing that you've done this year. You said you've been writing um, some poetry related to your work as a nurse, um, but you also um, write a lot of poetry re- related to pop culture, um, yes. specifically Quentin Tarantino. Uh, in some of your poems. So I'm, I'm curious about this. What is it about his work that inspires you to write poetry?
1: Oh, um, I don't know. So I got sick. Um, I had the flu and then I had a kidney infection like over Christmas one year. And so I spent like four weeks in bed. And I was, like, scrolling through Netflix, and I found, I had never seen a Quentin Tarantino film in my life. And I was on Netflix, and I saw *Inglorious Bastards. And I loved World War II films, so I was like, I'll give it a shot. And I, like, fell in love. Like, I watched it, and then I watched it again, like, immediately after finishing it. Like, roll credits, go back to the beginning, and we're going to watch it again. And then, like, I watched it, like, every day. Like, it became, like, almost obsessive because something about that film just, like... I don't know. I don't know if it was like Brad Pitt. I don't know if it was Christoph Waltz um, or the right, something about it was just so like um, just totally had me obsessed. And so I got like out of that rut and I was like, I have to see what else this man has done. And then I watched like every Tarantino film that I could find and that, so I watched Kill Bill um, and then I wrote both parts and then I wrote a poem that was kind of, um, a dialogue between me as a writer and then the bride as a character. And then there was also a little bit of Uma Thurman, um, in there as well, kind of like communicating with us. And I don't know. And then like, from then it's just been like this constant obsession. Like I go back to it and I go back to it and I go back to it and, um, something about Quentin Tarantino's work just really speaks to me. I don't know if it's like the way that he does things like he does in Pulp Fiction where he kind of like jumps around in the story, but you can still like understand. And I don't know if that's what I'm drawn to is that he has this accessible quality about his work um, that I kind of want to emulate, but he does it without like sacrificing any, you know, nobody's going to say that Pulp Fiction Someone might say Pulp Fiction is a bad film. Um, But I think that it kind of changed the film industry is what I'm getting at. And um, Quentin Tarantino did something with that film that nobody had ever done before. And I think that that is really attractive to me. I don't know, something about his way of storytelling speaks to me as a writer.
0: Yeah, it kind of goes back to our earlier conversation in a way, like trying to bridge that gap between being accessible, but also pushing the boundaries of Mm -hmm. the art form I mean, Pulp Fiction does that. It's, I find it to, to be one of those films that is accessible. Anybody can watch it and really enjoy it and understand it, but it is groundbreaking in the way that it's edited, and the, um, the way that it's put together. So, yeah, I could, I could totally see that. Um, I, I love his films, too. Um, uh, yeah. I don't
1: like him as a person. I think he as a person is an asshole. But his films, I don't know, man. Like, they changed my life.
0: <clears throat> yeah. Well, I wanted to talk to you about that, you know, Quentin Tarantino as an asshole, because <laughs> I mean, in, you know, he, he hasn't really been completely on the right side of uh, the history Anything, um, yeah. in the last <laughs> several years or maybe ever. I, I don't, I don't know, but uh, you know, he had a close relationship with Harvey Weinstein um, and uh, he made some questionable comments related to the me too movement. Um, and I know you're aware of these things. So, I'm curious what you think, um, about the idea of be, like separating the art from the artist, like being able to appreciate the art, even when the artist might be an asshole. Um, cause for me, it's, uh, I think of like David Foster Wallace. I love his writing. I've read a lot of it. I, I think it's fascinating and really well done, but from all accounts, um, he was terrible, um, specifically to women and, uh, you know, Mary Carr had come out a few years ago and said that he had been really abusive in their relationship. Um, So I don't know, is it, is it possible to still appreciate the art and separate it from the artist? Or is there, I don't know, like, is there some culpability in, um, in appreciating art by someone who might not be such a great person?
1: Yeah, I, that's something that I still grapple with. Um, and continue to grapple with, because I think to a certain extent, no, you can't separate art from artists. This terrible person, regardless of what they made, is still a terrible person. Um, But I, I think that also the message that we get in a lot of his films is really interesting, especially considering, like, his treatment and his historical treatment of women. So his relationship with Harvey Weinstein, um, the things that he has said to Uma Thurman, um, his treatment of Diane Kruger in, during the filming of *Inglorious Bastards. Like, he doesn't have a great track record with women, but then in his films, um, specifically, for example, uh, Kill Bill, both part one and part two, we see this kind of, like, revenge narrative from the bride where she kind of, like, takes back control of her life. She gets revenge. She gets exactly what she wanted um by the end of the film and I think that kind of that kind of story that we get of this woman taking her power back not that that redeems him in any sense of the word um but I think that that kind of makes me pause and be like well can we understand his work as like this narrative of uh really bad things happened to me. And now I am like stronger because of them. I've come back from them, whatever. Um, Even in the wake of Quentin Tarantino's questionable um, activities.
0: Well, I mean, I think that this conversation makes your poem tell it to the tourists even more fascinating. Um, And I know that you, you uh, have a copy with you. So do you mind reading it now?
1: No, I don't mind. Um, So tell it to the tourists has an epigraph that I'm going to read um it is from reservoir dogs tell it to the tourists time out green bay tell that fucking bullshit to the tourists one there are no women in reservoir dogs except the waitress in the beginning the one mr pink doesn't want to tip and the black girl mr white and mr orange carjack two when they remake it they call them madam Jennifer Lawrence plays Madame Orange, a tough cop who dresses exclusively in wife beaters and leather pants. She gets shot in the boob instead of the gut, a statement about femininity and the sacrifices lady cops make. It is also an excuse to show Jennifer Lawrence's tits on the big screen. Three, instead of like a virgin, they discuss the sexism in Robin Thicke's blurred lines, the way he assumes. It's not about consent, Madame Brown says, it's about ownership. Four, they use the word fuck exactly 200 times, which is approximately 75% of the times it is used in the original. This is a statement on the amount of money women make, but it's lost on the audience, too mesmerized watching women scream fuck 200 times, watching Jennifer Lawrence's tits bleed. Five, Meryl Streep plays the mastermind, a hard ass criminal named Jolene. Everyone gets to see it in theaters, to watch a 50 foot Meryl Streep scream fuck and flick her cigar, missing the ashtray. Six. Natalie Portman, when offered the role of Madame Blonde, declines, citing ethical conflicts. Mila Kunis takes the role instead, throws gasoline on some up and coming actress just trying to get her start. Critics hate the torture scene. Mila Kunis goes too far, they say. She lacks Madsen's control. Nobody likes a crazy bitch. Seven. Scarlett Johansson plays Madame Pink, decked out in pink lipstick and pink nails and a powder pink suit. Her hair is pink too because Reservoir Dames is set in 2019 and pink pink hair is acceptable. Celebrated even, totally badass. Everyone wants to fuck her, which is part of the appeal. Critics say Scarlett Johansson brings something Steve Buscemi never could. Eight, critics hate it despite all the big names it carries. The world isn't ready for bad women getting their revenge. Reservoir dames lacks heart, they say. Nothing at its center but blood. Nine. Julia Roberts, the director, and Madame Brown tips her sunglasses down, sliding into a car. We're all blood at the center, she says. Ten. At the end, when Madame Orange and Madame White roll around on the floor, bleeding together, you hope Sandra Bullock, who else, won't shoot Jennifer Lawrence, but she will. It hurts. Critics hate that they died, like orange and white should have ridden off into the sunset, a lesbian Bonnie and Clyde, Sandra Bullock at the wheel of a yellow Cadillac, titless Jennifer Lawrence moaning fuck, 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 in the backseat.
0: That was great. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, I, I love it. I mean here we have like it, this I, I love that it's like a the premise is like a feminist retelling of res, reservoir dogs but like the really important messages like the fact that women make 75% of men are so buried in it that it it it's not feminist at all really like it, it you know it be, it, that stuff just goes over the audience's head and and what you end up with is just Women being objectified on screen, which is like what we've always had, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was curious if that idea of accessibility was in your head when you were writing this.
1: Um, I think I think it's fun to write. I mean, I like poems that address things that are like issues and that are serious, but like aren't afraid to have like a chuckle or two in them. Um, and I think that that's part of accessibility too. People like things that are funny and that can make them laugh. Um, and I think that that was definitely part of it. I kind of wanted to do this. I was watching Reservoir Dogs and I was like, there are no women in the Where are the mo- women in this movie? Like the only women that exist in this movie are this waitress and this black woman that like gets carjacked. That's it. Those are the only two women. And I think... Um, I wanted to kind of write about that. So I don't know as far as accessibility goes. um, I think I was thinking about that more in revision than I was in writing, but like thinking about people like things that are funny and people like things about pop culture, pop culture is fun.
0: Yeah, no. Yeah. I mean the humor in this really stood out to me as well. Um, I also was, you know, was thinking about the way that like women's work is judged more harshly than men's work. Um, Definitely in Hollywood, but also in general. Um, And so like you have this setup where you have all these A-list actresses who I'm sure are giving fantastic performances, but the entire time they're being compared to their male counterparts. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have like Joe Hanson's character who, you know, the best the best thing that a critic says about this is that, uh, um, you know, like she brings a sex appeal that Steve Buscemi never could. Right. Yeah, <laughs> which, yeah. which is funny, um, but highlights a really important thing. And then also like uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character being referred to as a lady cop. It's mm-hmm. like, you can't just call her cop. You know, it's okay. like, Right. It's like, it's like the whole pantsuit thing. Why do we have to call it a pantsuit? It's just a suit, right?
1: right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> so, yeah. so I wanted to ask you about the use of humor as a way to, um, to address really serious issues. Um, is that something you do a lot in your poetry?
1: It's something I try to do with varying success. Um, I don't, I think it goes back to, um, people thinking of poets as like the super serious or super sad or super emotional people. Um, And I think that I'm, that I can be all three of those things too, but I think that poetry can also be fun. And I sound like such a, like, poetry is fun. Come on, we're going (laughs) to write poetry. That's not like necessarily what I'm getting at. But I think that especially whenever you're first introducing poetry to people, you want to invoke some kind of a reaction. And I think if you can invoke like laughter, I think, Um, that's really attractive to people. It's like, oh, I read this thing and it was really funny. Like, I don't know, whenever I read something funny, I want to like share it with people because it like, I was like, well, I want to give this laughter that I had to you. Like there was a thing on McSweeney's, um, going around around Christmas time that was about the sound of music. And it was like, this is what the Baroness, um, oh gosh, the Baroness, I can't think of her last name. Anyway, the Baroness would have said about like Maria and it was funny. And so I was like sending it to all my friends and my family. And I think that that is what's so attractive to me is like humor is something that kind of unites us. And I think if you can use humor and also talk about something that's really important, like the fact that women are paid 75 cents to every dollar that a man makes, um, like bonus.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, one thing that's that I hear a lot um, and that I'm sure writers and artists in general find really frustrating is, is um, when people say like, oh, I, I don't really like poetry or I don't really like literature um, because it's depressing or it's sad, right, um, which to me means like, you, you know, <laughs> you don't want to feel anything, but that's the point. Right. (laughs) But if you can mask that serious stuff in humor, it becomes so much more accessible to people. And I don't think, in my opinion, I don't think it takes away from the message. I think it helps to spread the message.
1: Yeah. I think my goal has always been to, I don't know, be accessible, but also like make people think a little bit about what they're, what they're reading. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, all, Hollywood is, like, full of all these, like, all women remakes now, um, as everybody knows. And, like, I'm all for those. I enjoy those. Like, I go to the movie and movies and I'm like, yeah, this is great, but I feel like a lot of it is just kind of very pa- uh, patronizing to me because, like you said, it's just objectification of women. Like, we can be like, oh, yeah, girl power, but Like, the men did it first, and so there's always going to be that constant comparison of, well, when the boys did it, this happened, but now it's just a bunch of, like, hot women running around on screen. And that's fine, but, like, that's not what I'm there for.
0: (laughs) Right. And, you know, I wasn't sure if my reading of this poem was right, but after you saying that, I think it might be, because I wrote down, like, one thing that I was thinking about was the way that capitalist entities co-opt the zeitgeist in order to sell shit. So, um, I mean, so you have this film that's supposed to be or this, you know, fictional film that you've created that's supposed to be about female empowerment. But the biggest concern really is selling tickets. So Mm -hmm. Jennifer Lawrence has to get shot in the boobs. Right. So, um, you know, so in a way, I read this poem as kind of like a middle finger to people who like are progressive in name only, but are really just trying to make money.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think like feminism is great. I'm a feminist, but I think that once you start like exploiting it to make money, then that makes you a shit bag.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have put it any better myself. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So, so what are you working on now? Like, are, are you still working at the emergency room now? Mm-hmm. Um Putting in hours there? Um, I see you shaking your head. Yes. So like, what is the, What has that been like with the pandemic? Are you still finding time to write? Do you have the mental space to write right now?
1: Yeah, I have not written this summer. Um, I have worked a lot at the emergency room. Um, I'm actually going there, like, as soon as we get done here (laughs) for another shift. But I think um, that doesn't give me space to write. But I think at the same time, like, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so... I don't know, I'm working in an emergency room with the pandemic, so I don't really expect to have time to write. Um, Northwest Arkansas after Memorial Day, I think like two weeks-ish after Memorial Day, we saw a 250% increase in COVID cases. um, And that made us like extremely busy. So um, as far as writing goes, like I do have things that I work on. Um, I'm actually working on a Tarantino adjacent thing um with blackout poetry i printed off the script to inglorious bastards and i'm like blocking out words and so i work on that and that's kind of like um something that i work on whenever i don't have a whole lot that i feel i can write about right now Um, because that the words are already there right i just have to make them make sense the way that i want them to Um, so I'm not writing a lot just because we are in the middle of a pandemic and I work in an emergency room, but I'm holding out hope that things will get better.
0: Yeah. Has there been any word from the University of Arkansas on what the fall semester might look like?
1: Uh, as of right now, the official word is that instructors get to choose whether we are in person or online. Um, I have chosen to teach my classes online um, I don't want COVID. I don't want to give anybody COVID. Um, so I'm I'm teaching online. And then I know that two of the three classes that I am taking are going to be online. So we're going to have to do online workshop, which is going to be interesting, but we'll figure it out.
0: Uh, well, Ali, this, this has been so much fun. I really enjoyed talking to you. This was fantastic. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.